Welcome and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh continues his series on the book of Romans. In this sermon, Pastor Josh discusses how God began to judge those who refused to glorify and honor Him. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1 as Pastor Josh delivers his sermon titled, God Gave Them Over. chapter 1 verses 24 to 32 continuing to study through this book together we're coming to a new section so we've finished up uh, two sections thus far and we find ourselves actually more than two we find ourselves getting ready here for a section that's going to finish out chapter 1 in verses 24 to 32 here so let's read the text together and then I need God's help and so we'll pray and ask for it so beginning in verse 24 Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Well, please bow with me and let's ask for God's grace. Well, Lord, our God, Father, we simply ask for something that is not real simple. We ask for a world of miracles to happen right now, oh God. Here's a group of your people, this flock, this body of believers coming to you and we need fed. We need fed, oh God. We need changed. We need transformed We need convicted and challenged and strengthened. We need our thinking to be addressed, Lord, that all the errors and the way we think all the lies that we're believing, God, we need it all addressed. We need it deconstructed and built back. We need to see the world as it really is. We need eyes that see according to how you see. We need the blinders removed, oh God, that we see this world, we see ourselves, and we see you for how it all really is. You do that in your word. And so here we are, a people, oh God, asking, please accomplish this and much more. Satan wants so badly to ruin this time so that somehow we do not benefit. Just ask God that you will win, that you will send your spirit. You'll shine light on your words so that we understand. Lord, help me to preach, teach, be faithful, truthful, not say wrong things, unhelpful things, foolish things, but only what is helpful. And all of us, oh God, give us hearts, minds that benefit from this time, oh God. Show us your glory. Show us your righteousness, your truth, and transform us through it, O God. So please bless this time for your sons and daughters. Please bring us along. And any in the room, O God, that are not yet a part of your people, not yet responded to Christ, Lord, I just beg that today would be the day that for the first time they come to understand the weight of their sin and the reality of the wrath that is already on them. And they'll run to Christ for forgiveness. Please, God, meet with us and bless us in this time. We ask all these things through Christ. Amen. These last couple weeks have let us see uh, some events, a news story, which has put the gospel 
and Christian missions back in the headlines again. A Christian by the name of John Chow, feeling the burden for God's glory, feeling the the zeal for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth, feeling compassion for souls, wanting to, in particular, bring the message of Christ to the unreached people group, set out to a Sentinelese island, known for violence against outsiders, and he approached them in order to bring the message of the gospel. He was very much aware of the dangers. He had planned this trip for years, really had taken great care in planning. I I know that if you're only listening to secular news, they're casting him out there as some sort of raging imbecile who just rushed into these things. We we actually have knowledge that for years he has been planning this and and keeping in mind all of the problems that could go wrong, knowing the dangers, but still he went. On his first trip approach to the uh, island in a kayak, he was met by a barrage of arrows and had to turn around and retreat back to the ship. When he went back to the ship, he wrote 18 pages in journal entries. He, He wrote one section of a prayer to God. He says this, if you want me to get actually shot or even killed with an arrow, then so be it. I think I could be more useful alive though. I don't want to die. Would it be wiser for me to leave and let someone else continue? No, I I don't think so. That sounds an awful lot like Paul. He wrote in another entry uh, a message to his loved ones and family. And he said, you guys might think I'm crazy in all this, but I think it's worth it to declare Jesus. This is not a pointless thing. The eternal lives of this tribe is at hand and I can't wait to see them around the throne of God worshiping in their own language. That sounds an awful lot like scripture. And two days later, he returned to the island where it is believed he was quickly murdered by the people who were there. This new story has hit the world and people are once again talking about the gospel and missions. But here's what also we have seen, especially in this past week, we have seen the culture's reaction. And it has been nothing short of savage. He's being spoken of as a lunatic, as a religious nut. He's being criticized for foolishness and sadly, even within, and I say this again loosely, the name of Christianity, this will not surprise you if you are aware of the sad state of churches in America, there has been a movement to highly criticize him as, you know, taking things too far, you know, actually doing what Jesus said. But it might be that the biggest talking point and the weightiest criticism that is being levied against him and all of Christianity is just the whole idea of gospel evangelism at all, Christian missions at all. And when you hear that nightly news speak of this kind of thing and they say this sentence of, he went there to convert them to Christianity, they say it with such a dire, what an idiot kind of tone that is there. But these criticisms are not new. Since 30 AD, the gospel has been hated by the world. And Jesus said it would be the case until he returned. Every generation, every culture has had their own particular parts of the gospel that they hated. For our day and age, one of the things that is despised the most is the whole concept that anyone would need to be converted to Christ. The whole idea that there's a problem in the world and and the suggestion by us Christians going and calling people to come to Christ for the forgiveness of sins, the suggestion that you might not be okay. This is what our culture hates and despises, that God has a wrath against sinners that every soul on the earth has need for cleansing in Christ. But this is the message of the word of God. The living God is a holy God. He is a righteous God who despises what is evil and he has a wrath against 
sinners and every soul on this planet. We are a planet of the guilty. We are a planet of sinners. There is a judgment of God that is to come and there is a judgment that he has already begun to display. We Christians, if you are in Christ this morning, we have been brought to Christ by this message but we have also been called to take this to the world that in Christ there is deliverance from the wrath of God. To the world, this is both confounding and angering. God's wrath towards sinners. And the passage that we begin working through this morning is a passage that is going to uh, begin to show us some of this wrath, some of this judgment that God has already begun to pour out. In fact, as we've already referenced, we're going to see it in three ways. This is not the only way that the wrath of God has begun to be poured out on the world. But in this passage, God is going to show us three ways that God has already begun to judge the world. So here's how we're going to kind of study through this section here. I think that we can make it through in in two studies. Okay, so today uh, the primary goal is we're going to take the text as a whole to begin make observations about the whole thing. I wanna, I wanna show you some of what's going on in the whole passage, uh, 24 all the way to 32. And then we're gonna get into the first way that the wrath of God is being displayed. And then I believe next Sunday, I believe, I think, emphasis there, that I believe we'll be able to finish it all up next Sunday. But if not, we'll take one more Sunday to work through those things. But three ways that the wrath of God has already begun to be displayed. So today, just two points observations on the whole text, and then the first way that we see in verses 24 to 25. So let's begin. Let me just kind of briefly remind you of the flow of the text. You know, we're only here once every seven days for this study that's here. You've slept seven times since we were here last. Let me just very quickly jog your memory of the flow of the text that is here. God has begun to judge. We saw that in verse 18. If we ask the question, why? Why has God begun to judge this world? The answer is given to us in verses 18 to 23. Because mankind has rejected God. Mankind was made to live in relationship. A worshiping relationship with God was made to worship God as God. And we have not only refused to do that, we have actually raised fist of defiance to God in refusing to honor him. And a pretty big emphasis in the text, by the way, on this honoring of God. We have refused to glorify, refused to honor him, and have actually insulted him. So therefore, therefore, God has begun to judge. And here are three ways that we see this. In this text, as you look through it, there's actually, there's actually a pattern that's used here. There's a, there are three patterns of three used in this text. Let me show them to you. The easiest to see is verses 24, 26, and 28. Do you see the the phrase repeated? Verse 24, God gave them over. Verse 26, God gave them over. Verse 28, God gave them over. Let me show you another pattern that is in here. In verse 23, they exchanged. Verse 25, they exchanged. Verse 26, they exchanged. The third kind of pattern that we see there is in what they exchanged. God for self. But that really gets into verses 26 and 27 will kind of be the most highlighted place that we see that. So we'll deal with more of that there. For now, I just wanted you to see this. Let me me make one brief point there. This is not a haphazard passage. And in fact, almost every single place in the entire Bible when you're reading and it seems like there's not a cohesive flow of thought, there almost always is. There almost always is some kind of poetic pattern or some kind of genius structure, some flow of reasoning and argument that is being given here. So as you read through this the first time, it might seem just kind of sporadic. There is a, there is a message and a structure that's being shown here. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. Therefore, God gave them over. And that's repeated three times. But this week, we're primarily going to focus on this part about God giving them over. 
God giving mankind over. So let's think on this for a bit. Every single day, God is restraining sin. God is active in this world. God is not just off somewhere. God is intimately involved in what is happening in this world. Here's, here's kind of some deep theological ways we speak of it. God is both transcendent and imminent. That can sound like just big words and abstract thinking, that sort of stuff. But here, here, here's what that means. The word transcendent means that God is above us. He's other than us. He's higher than us. Higher than the heavens are than the earth. So infinitely higher is God's thinking the complexities of his knowledge, of his wisdom. God does not think like we do with all of our sinfulness, with all of our weakness. God is high, seated in the heavens. He's transcendent. But he's also imminent. And what that means is he's near to us. God is, God is not just off somewhere, created the world, and then left it, and he's just off galaxies away simply looking in. God is intimately involved in the daily moments of your life. He is near. Christians so much so that whenever you come to faith in Christ, at the moment of your new birth, the Holy Spirit came and began to live in you. He's not just around he is in you. And what is he doing in you, Christian? The Holy Spirit is in your life, influencing you every single day. Urging, pushing, suggesting thoughts to your hearts, helping you to want obedience to God, helping you to want to leave sin. God is intimately involved in your life. But here... Here's another part to see. The Bible shows that even to the unbelieving, God is at work to restrain evil. It is an active work of God's grace. And so if you notice in the Bible, we see two things happening at the same time. God is displaying his judgment. He has begun to pour out a wrath on the earth, but he is also expressing kindness. He is also showing grace. There is both judgment and grace happening on the world. And even to the unbelieving world, God gives the grace of restraining evil. And that is a gift. How does God do this? How does he restrain evil? I think from scripture, we could draw out a whole bunch of ways that he does. Sometimes he just physically causes something to happen that stops an event that someone was planning. You know, the study of history for a Christian is so much fuller than the unbelieving world. History is full of all of these moments where something really horrible almost happened, but some seemingly random event stopped this kind of thing. World War II is full of those moments that are there. Some event happened at just the right time. I, I imagine that when we get to heaven, we will discover and be shown certain moments of our life where someone wanted to harm us or something disastrous almost happened, but God in his mercy reached into time and space and held back evil from coming to us. When my mom was a child, a man tried to lure her into a car, promising her candy and a little girl to play with. But her aunt saw my mom about to get in the car, threw the front door open and yelled, and the man sped off. There are other ways that God restrains evil. God restrains evil by our governing authorities. Listen to me. The existence of law and order and police is an act of God's grace bringing peace to the world you live in. Uh, sometime on a mission trip, go visit a place where there are no police or the police do not enforce laws. Go drive in the city of Lima, Peru. Come back and be thankful that we have police officers who bring law and order. It is a grace of God. After Hurricane Katrina, our nation saw some of the most disgusting displays of human depravity that we have seen in modern times when law enforcement was not there in the city of New Orleans. It's amazing to me that the main story 
that went on is uh, the power of human ingenuity and the spirit to rebuild this glory, this glory given to humanity when the reality is we saw some of the most vile and disgusting things imaginable. There was actually a wave of police officers who when they went back into the city committed suicide after seeing the disgusting things that humans were doing to other humans. God restrains evil by the existence of law. We could probably sit down and come up with several other ways from scripture that God does this. Jonathan Edwards argued, I agree with him, that even amongst unbelievers who don't understand the gospel and don't understand how it all works, the fear of hell is a helpful influence that holds people back from going as far as they would if that thought were not in their heads. God holds men back by influencing their hearts. God often uses earthly means. For instance, the force of the church in history has been an influence that has brought order to cultures even when the majority were not born-again believers. All right, here, here's an example. I am fully convinced that in the ministries we have in the schools where we go in and we teach these classes and such, I am fully convinced that a great number of the children who did not repent and trust in Christ were still helped onto a more moral life. I am convinced there were some children on their way to a life of crime and were helped onto a less egregious way of life by the influence of morality. Now, don't misunderstand me here. On the day of judgment, God is not going to see the moral improvement and then welcome them into the kingdom. But what that does do is bring order and grace and peace to the world we live in. The influence of the church in history has had this act of grace on the world, bringing mercy to the world. God restrains evil. Christian, you might even be able to think back on some times in your life in hindsight where you nearly crossed a line. You nearly crossed a line into some grievous sin and something at the last minute stopped you. Maybe one last thought or maybe somebody who spoke one word and, and it kept you from going back. I can think of numerous in my life I imagine on the day of judgment, I'll be shown a whole lot more. But I can think of numerous moments. I nearly crossed a line. And something at that last minute kept it from happening. Sometimes somebody is talking sense into me. God restrains evil. We are more evil than you think we are. Part of what keeps us going further is the sovereign gracious, restraining hand of God. It, if you remember that moment when Cain became jealous and angry at his brother Abel and before he committed murder, do you remember that moment when God came to him and gave him a word of warning? There is a picture there. There is a picture of the restraining grace that God gives. But here is what God is showing us in this text. As an act of judgment for a people assaulting God, insulting them by their rejection of him, by exchanging God for idols, by their raised fist to heaven, refusing to worship God as an act of judgment, God removes that grace of restraint. This, this text, friends, is meant to help us understand history understand the world, understand why there are aspects of this world that are the way that they are. H have, you ever, have you ever heard someone say cynically, well, if your God is so good, then why is there hate, love? Why does rape exist if your God is so good? This text is answering that question. This text is showing us that the reason that it is there is because as an act of judgment, God has taken his hands of restraint partially at different times, in different cultures, in different ways, has taken his hand of restraint off. And we, we, we have run to indulge the lust 
of our hearts. You do need to understand this, friends. God can stop every act of evil, but he would be turning us into robots or destroying this planet to remove all of sin. As an act of God's grace and for the building of his people. God allows history to go on and he has sent his son to bring people into salvation to build a kingdom for his namesake. But what that means is that along the way there is a history of sin because we are a planet of sinners. And so one of the things that the text is doing is this. Where did murder and rape and hate and greed and lovelessness, where did these things come from? They came as an act of judgment in God removing his hands of restraint. It is an act of judgment that there comes a time when God lets people have what they want. But what they cannot see in their blindness is that what they want is not only bad. Here's part of the point of the text, so track this with me. What they want is not only sinful, it's stupid. It's not only bad, it's not only the wrong thing to do, it's destructive, it's degrading, it's demeaning, and it brings dishonor to us. It robs joy and destroys dignity. Let's think through for just a second here on, on what this is. Think of a teenage boy who, who goes into uh, pornography. Why does he go there? It's what his heart wants. It's the lust inside of his heart. But what he cannot comprehend is what his life will look like five years into the future. If he continues into this way, he, he cannot comprehend the ways that his mind will be distorted and warped. He cannot comprehend the fact that maybe five years into the future, he will look around and when he sees women, he only sees them in one way for his own usage. He will not see the fact that he loses the ability to selflessly and unconditionally love anyone. He will not see the fact that his mind will be so warped and distorted, he will become a sad male whose life is being wasted because he only sees this one thing. He will be dishonored. He will be distorted. There will be destruction that happens in his mind and he can't see it at the beginning. What he wanted was sinful, but it's not just sinful, it's destructive. Or imagine a young woman who begins using drugs and at the beginning she cannot comprehend what her life will look like all of the brokenness, all of the despair, all of the horribly degrading things she will do while she is on these drugs, the way she'll bring heartache to her family, to the world around her, and she will be living in her own judgment. She chose it. It's what she wanted. And by the way, as I use that kind of example, you know, we all can sort of like see the very obvious example of like drug use. But here's one of the things scripture shows. Every pattern of sin you could possibly participate in has a destructive and dishonoring nature about it. They're just not all as obvious. The love of money, which our culture just doesn't even think of as wrong, it will have a destructive and dishonoring effect in your heart. A friend of mine brought his children to the beach as toddlers. And one of them reached down, grabbed a handful of sand and tried to put it in his mouth. And his dad stopped him. No. A couple of minutes later, he did the same thing. He reached down and started to bring it up to his mouth. No. The third time, he got it to his mouth before the parent could stop him. And then the child began to gag and choke on a mouthful of sand. There's a metaphor there. It's not a perfect one. Because sin usually brings some kind of pleasure before the consequence but there is a picture there. Why'd that kid want to eat sand? Well, babies want stupid things and not just babies. Are you with me? If we were to sit down and logically think of any sin, even the ones that our culture likes, it is an illogical choice. Our, heart, our hearts want things that are unreasonable, that don't make sense, that are illogical. That's what, that's what lust is. But the point is, 
there comes a point when God gives over. And so there are multiple applications to this as we look at this. And so comprehend this. There is an application to you as an individual. If you trample the grace of God, his restraining grace, and you keep pushing and pushing and pushing to try to go into evil, you need to understand that there will come a day when God removes that grace. What a terrifying thought. But it is also the case that for a culture itself, when the culture as a whole keeps pushing and pushing and pushing, rebelling against the restraining grace of God, there come times when God takes his hands partially, it's never fully, but his hands of restraining grace off of a culture and lets them run into insanity. But this also explains this as well. In the same way that we said that one demonstration of God's wrath in this earth is just the existence of cancer in general. And someone who gets cancer, it doesn't mean that God is angrier at that person than he is at everyone else. But the existence of the cancer is a demonstration of the wrath of God. It is also the case that in this world, as you look down through verses 29, 30, and 31, and that list of unrighteous deeds and wickedness that is there, the existence of them in this world is a demonstration of the judgment of God. It's another interesting study. We may get there if we have time. As you read through that list in 29, 30, and 31, you will see yourself. I see myself. And I see some things that we were born with tendencies toward. Does that mean that you in the womb, you raised a fist to God and he gave you over in the lust of your infant heart? No. The existence of these things in general is a demonstration of the wrath of God. God could make a world in which these things did not exist. And he will one day. But the existence of them is a demonstration of the wrath of God. So God has given this world over to the lust of our hearts because mankind raised a unified fist to God and said, we will not bow. So that's kind of an overview of what we see happening in this text. And, and do you, uh, one of the parts I really want to emphasize is I want you to notice the part that seems a bit backward. It is the case that God's wrath is going to come on the world because of these unrighteous deeds. That is the case. But it is also the case these things are here in response to the first way that we rebel against God. And the first way, the matter of priority of where we rebel against God is in the ways we raise a fist to him and refuse to bow and worship him as God. And so God gives them over. And here's the first specific way that we see that. In verse 24, God gave them over to impurity and to dishonor. Look at how the text words it in verse 24. Read it with me again. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. All right, think through the language that's used there. Think through this, this part about lust for just a moment. You've probably heard this before. We've said this here. I believe it's a quote from C.S. Lewis, but it's not original to him. Sin is a parasite. Sin is not its own thing. Here's what sin always is. Sin is always a way that some good gift of God gets twisted. Does that make sense? If you think through every individual specific act of a sin, and it's never its own creation, what it is, is it's always a way that God has made something good, joyful, pleasurable, and sin is a way that that good thing is perverted, corrupted, twisted. And lust is when we want some good thing in a wrong way or to a wrong degree. Okay, okay. Um, the desire for food is a fine and good thing. 
But gluttony is when we desire food to a degree that is not good. We cross a line. We treat food as more important than what it is. We, we elevate it. We have too much affection for this kind of thing. You with me? Okay, this is very easy to see. Maybe the most obvious to see when it comes to sexual sin and which is where the text will bring us at some point. But lust is the root of every sin. And so what the text is saying is that in God's judgment, instead of God continuing to restrain lust and sin, God has pulled his hands back to allow humanity to run to the lust of our hearts. But here is the result. Our bodies are dishonored. What does this mean that we are dishonored in it? You, and I speak to you Christian and non-Christian, you were created in the image of God. You were created in Adam and Eve to be sons and daughters of God higher than any other part of creation. And that includes the angels. Insects crawl on the ground. Snakes slither. Beasts walk on four legs. And you were made to stand upright. You were created in dignity. You were created with honor. You were created and given a nobility as the creation made in the very image of God. You were made to be sons and daughters of the living God. You were made not to be boastful, of course, but to possess a dignity. To walk around on this earth with your, your shoulders back and your, your head high in a way that knew you're standing before God that he had created you with a special kind of sacredness and worth. You were created with honor and nobility and our call was to live like it. You were created in the image of God. Now live like people who are made in the image of God. You were created with honor. Now live honorably. But here's part of what the Bible shows. Sin is not only wrong, it has this effect it demeans you, it lowers you, it takes your dignity and makes you into a slitherer on the ground. It robs you of your dignity. There was a wicked king in the Old Testament that we're, talked about, that we're told about who conquered some of the uh, cities around him and he took those nobles, the kings of those cities, and he cut off some of their fingers and toes so as to maim them. And then he forced them that when he ate his meals, they lived off of the scraps that fell from his table. I'm trying to help you picture the loss of dignity. The irony of Satan's temptation to Adam and Eve that by eating the fruit, they would become like God. The irony is that in eating, in sinning, they became less like God than what they had been. The irony is that they traded in the kingly robes of honor for rags of shame. Sin robs you of your dignity, but here is part of the point and how this will help us make sense. We don't see it yet, but you will. We don't see the dishonoring. As we grow in Christ, as we begin to see this world more and more through the lenses of truth, through the lenses of scripture, we come to comprehend more of it, but not entirely yet. Sin makes you like the beast. You've probably heard that expression before. It's actually used in the Bible. It's used in the Psalms. Certain practices are acting like an animal, scripture will say. Animals do not come together and enter into a joyful covenant of marriage, make solemn oaths to each other and make promises to love like God loves. Animals just breed. And when humans sleep around, that's acting like an animal. And part of the point of what scripture is showing is, is this. That's degrading. That's demeaning. You weren't made to be a beast. You were made to be a man. You were made to be a woman made in God's image with great honor and great dignity. Why slither around in the mud like an animal when you were made to be sons and daughters? Sin has a way that it brings us into the mud of shame. 
And though we do not see it yet fully, I believe the more we grow in Christ, the more we get a sense of it. The more we look at certain sins and think, why would you want to do it if you're demeaning yourself? But even right now, we don't see it perfectly. But to the angels and even to the demons, you look like an ape. Do you not comprehend that the demons who live their lives to, to tempt and to lure humans into sin. They're high-fiving and giggling and, and reveling in the fact, look what we made him do. He looks like an ape. And they rejoice in robbing us of dignity. But we don't see it yet. But here is one of the points that Scripture will make, specifically in chapter 2. On the day of judgment... We will see it and we will feel it. So that last statement is very important. Friends, there are sins that we see and we're grossed out by them. And then there are sins that we see and we participate in. We don't think they're that big of a deal. We don't feel embarrassed. We don't feel guilt. We don't feel shame. The reason why, friends, is because our consciences that God has given us, they don't operate perfectly. Our thinking is not perfect. So when I say this phrase, child molestation, what's that do to you? It gives you a shudder. Gives, gives you a recoil. Oh, What that is, there's a yuck factor. It's one of my professors used to call it the yuck factor, the way that sin progresses in a culture is that there's a, a, a culture that, that feels a yuck about certain actions, and then you've got these progressive pioneers of culture, a.k.a. Hollywood. Their favorite agenda in life is to fix everybody's morals, tell you what to think, tell you what to believe, tell you what right and wrong is. They think they're Moses on the mountain delivering a law, telling you how to think. What's their agenda? We've got to remove the yuck. So they put a homosexual in every sitcom and movie. Why? to normalize it, to, to remove the yuck factor so that we all come more and more. But, but, but here, here's part of the point here. When, when I say that phrase, child molestation, and you yuck at it, understand this. God feels that way about sins that you don't feel that way about. God feels that way about sin in general. God feels that way even about our, quote, smallest and lightest of sins that we have. Now, do not misunderstand. There are sins that God finds more disgusting than others. I, I know sometimes there's this idea all sin is the same. I, I do not find that in Scripture. There are sins that God finds more repulsive than others that revokes a, a greater shudder, a greater recoil, a greater yuck factor. God feels this way about all of sin. But here's, you know, sometimes there's the reaction in hearing that, that some will say something like, well, I think that's dumb. I don't think God should feel that way about my little vices. Comprehend this. You're the sinful worm. He's the righteous creator. You're the doer of evil. He's the one who is perfect and holy Holy, holy. When God sees something as yuck, guess who's right? He is. He sees according to truth. When God looks at even our, quote, smallest of sins, he sees things that are repulsive to him. And there are some things that in other cultures we can look at. There's some sin that evokes some big yuck factor. But then there are things in our culture that we don't feel that way about. God feels the yuck and the dishonoring of all of them. And so here is what we are being shown here. When we engage in sin, we may not yet feel the yuck. We may not yet feel the guilt. May not yet feel the shame. May not yet feel how dirty it is. But on the day of judgment, we and everyone else will. And every way that humanity has rebelled against God and run after the lust of their hearts, they will feel the shame of those things and how we have dishonored. So here, here is what God is showing. Here's what God is saying. Because of the affront 
of dishonoring God, one expression of the wrath of God is that he allows mankind to dishonor themselves. Do you see that connection in the text? Look at verse 24, 21. They did not honor him as God. Verse 24, gave them over to the dishonoring of themselves. That's a connection in the text. Because mankind has not honored God, God in judgment allowed them to dishonor themselves. And so while the nations run after the lust of their hearts and dishonor themselves, all the while they're reveling and they're talking about their freedom and Hollywood's making movies, glorifying these things. Look how beautiful this is. All the while they're mocking Christians as prudes who just don't know how to have a good time. They're telling us about their freedom. And all the while they drag around a ball of chain of slavery and live in constant degradation. But one day, we're all going to see it from God's perspective. The way that sin dishonors. I remember a story one pastor told there was a woman in this church who had cheated on her husband and she had said that when she began the affair, it was beautiful. It was invigorating. It was new love. She, she lived with just sort of that, that very happy demeanor. It was so wonderful. But once it got exposed, she said it was the most disgusting thing she'd ever seen, ever participated in. She dishonored herself, but she couldn't yet see it. Friends, that is the story of this world. But it's not the full story. The full story is that in the greatest display of the mercy of God, God sent one to rescue us from our dishonoring. God sent a redeemer. God sent a savior. God sent one to cleanse us. You know, we throw around all these biblical words all the time. We call Jesus our redeemer, call him our savior, talk about cleansing, things like that. We don't feel the weight of it until you feel the weight of your sin. It's not until we get a grasp of just how ugly and awful sin really is that all of the ways that Jesus frees us out of it start to become beautiful. Until you feel, ugh, yuck, I'm dirty, will the appeal of being cleansed seem really beautiful? God, the lover of your souls, sent one to go to the cross to have nails driven in his body, his blood flow from his side, be spilt in that dirt to free you out of your bondage, your guilt, your shame. Listen to me. We have dishonored ourselves. Jesus brings us into honor again. When we're gathered into the kingdom of heaven, you're, you're not just brought as a groveling slave there. You're not like one of those kings forced to sit on the floor and eat the scraps from the table. You listen to me. God has prepared a seat for you at his table. You in Christ, there's a seat with your name on it. There is an honor that he is restoring, cleansing that he is giving. Jesus redeems us out of all of the wrath, but also out of the shame. In Christ, Christian, and this is only to you, Christian, right now. To you, Christian, do you feel some of the weight and dirtiness of your past? It's good for a moment. Don't stay there because that's not where you are. That's not your life and that's not who you are any longer. God doesn't want you to live with a feeling of dirtiness and guilt. In Christ, you are forgiven and cleansed and he wants you to feel forgiven and cleansed and free and with honor and a place at his table. You are sons and daughters of the living God. Don't live in that place of guilt. Walk, walk like someone made in the image of God and re-brought recreated, renewed to a place of honor. I, I know that what we talked about today, it's not the funnest of subjects. 
guilt and shame and sin and the dirtiness that's there. It's not the most fun thing to talk about, but neither is disease. But if you have the disease, you've got to suck it up and you've got to talk about it. It's the reality of this world. The disease of sin, the guilt, the shame, the ugliness, it is there. We have to deal with these things. And, and, and to you who have not yet come to Christ, do you feel some of the dirtiness that you have before God? Do you feel some of the guilt? Do you feel some of the shame? Is God helping you right now to feel ugly before him? What I want to tell you is that is a work of God. You got to come there first, but he doesn't want you to stay there. You can right now be cleansed, be forgiven, be accepted, be brought to the table, but you must flee to Christ. Your cleansing, your honor, your redemption, your salvation, it is only in Christ. Look to him, cry out to him in faith. And what God says is, it's not some long process in an instant. Right now, you can be converted to Christ and brought to him but you must look to him in faith. Invitation I give like I usually give. If you're here, you want to talk about that, got more questions, find me before you leave. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, we thank you for what you have done for us in Christ. And we thank you, oh God, that you have loved us with an eternal love. Please, oh God, I pray for uh, us believers in the room. I ask, Lord, that you will grow us in our knowledge of these things and then bring us to walk as a freed and forgiven people. But Father, I pray for any here, oh God, that have not yet repented, not yet run to you. Please, oh God, draw them. Make it clear to them what they must do. Please bless us as we leave. We pray these things through Christ. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled, God Gave Them Over. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.